I'm Zibby Owens, and you're listening to the Webby-nominated podcast, Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books. This episode has been sponsored by Lauren Gabrielson, which is a women's wear brand that creates elevated essentials for the modern women's wardrobe. The collection is entirely designed and produced in Brooklyn, New York. The Lauren Gabrielson woman values quality, versatile pieces that she can wear every day that are customized to her body, her time, and her style. And by the way, I have two Lauren Gabrielson headbands, which I wear all the time, and you can see in my photos on my events page because I wear them everywhere, and they're amazing, and actually my six-year-old daughter steals mine all the time. So anyway... LaurenGabrielson.com. I'm really excited to be here today with Catherine McGee, who's the author of the New York Times bestselling series, The Thousandth Floor, and her latest book, American Royals. An English and French literature major at Princeton, Katie earned her MBA from Stanford. She currently lives with her husband in Houston, Texas. So welcome to Katie. Thank you so much for having me. I'm so excited to be here. It's so nice to be here in person together. Thanks yes. for flying in. I know you have all these good, exciting book events in the city. So I'm really excited no, that you made time. This is so fun. <laughs> I love doing this. So American Royals, so good. I was saying to you earlier, I like couldn't wait. I had to read every page like voraciously, like what was going to happen? It was really great. Tell listeners, please, what American Royals is about and what inspired you to write it. So American Royals is essentially Crazy Rich Asians meets the crown. So it is a what if scenario of what if instead of being our first president, George Washington had been our first king and present day America is still a monarchy. And it follows the love lives and relationships and adventures of the three children who are all, you know, the current generation of heirs to the throne. So there's Princess Beatrice, who will be the very first Queen of America, and then her two younger siblings, Samantha and Jefferson. And are you a royal family addict type of person? Like- I am, but I'm more of a historical fiction addict. So I, you know, I read a ton, ton, ton of historical fiction, anything about... Versailles, Charles II, Queen Victoria, the Tudors, I'm here for all of it. And so it's been in more recent years that I've become reinvested in the modern British royal family. There was also a long time where they weren't that fun, to be totally honest, (laughs) because like William and Harry were teenagers and, you know, Charles is just Charles, sadly. (laughs) And so I feel like they've had this whole, you know, rebranding in recent years because, you know, they've had two really big weddings and now they have a whole new generation and we have all these really fun photos and it's been really exciting to kind of dive back into them as the royal family is is changing in so many positive ways. I remember waking up my twins who are now 12. I woke them up. I think they were five. I can't remember when exactly the Princess mm-hmm. Kate wedding was, but I, I woke up my daughter and I was like, get up, we have to watch this. We have to watch the wedding. Okay, so that's one of my favorite New York moments was watching that wedding. So I have a friend who works, who used to work at the time in television. And so I went to this very glamorous royal wedding breakfast tea party actually here in Manhattan because I was living in New York at the time and it was the Kathy Lee and Hoda party. Wow. I know. It's so cool. I have great pictures from it, but it basically my alarm went off at 4 a.m. and we met up and went because the pre-show started at 5 a.m. Eastern time and had like curled my hair, had on this bright pink dress, this big hat, and we're all crowded into this restaurant and they were passing around mimosas, you know. So (laughs) this is on a Friday and I went to work that day and I had like gotten up, you know, had mimosas and and like tea little scones and things and watched they had the wedding, all the pre-show and then of course the live ceremony on these enormous screens. 
And it was so fun to watch. And the entire room broke out in cheers when they kissed. And then I remember going out onto the street and people on the street were excited. And it just felt like all of New York was celebrating this moment that didn't even have anything really to do with us. And it's just about, you know, royals who belong to another country. But it it will always remain one of my, it's like being in New York for New Year's or something. It's one of those like New York, Manhattan memories that I really treasure. And then of course you've, effectively tapped into this whole royalty passion with your book, which is great. Tell me about how your thesis in college related to this final book. So my college thesis was so much fun, although the final product was a complete mess. Um, I tried to write a historical fiction novel, and I probably only got about I don't know, 60 to 80 pages of the novel, which is really funny because now Now that doesn't sound so hard to me. Now I I look back and I think, how did that take me a year to do? (laughs) I can do that. But at the time, of course, I had never really written fiction before. You probably had a lot of other classes. I had other things going on. I mean, right? I mean, come on. Let's cut me some slack. Yeah, cut you some slack here. But I did, someday maybe I will revisit that novel. It was really fun. It was set in 17th century France and it followed, it was also like American Royals, it was multi POV and it followed young women in Moliere's theater troupe and then young women at Versailles and it was sort of a like a Philippa Gregory-esque but set in Versailles under the Sun King and it was really fun. So since I, you know, it was a creative thesis, I still, I couldn't just turn in a creative document that does not fly at Princeton. <laughs> and so I had to write a, like a final piece that was several chapters of, for lack of a better term, almost his, history. Mm-hmm which is not very typical in the English department, but it was, I wrote about the history of historical fiction in America. And in particular, this very niche subgenre of what I sort of called not even royal historical fiction, but historical fiction telling women's stories of stories that traditionally were men's stories. And we're seeing a lot of that in recent years. I mean, if you think about Madeline Miller and Circe, and I mean, I feel like there's so many stories where we are now taking, you know, a myth or a legend, whether it's King Arthur, and taking the women's side and retelling it. And so I was investigating stories like, you know, Shakespeare's wife and and the subgenre of historical fiction that follows the women who were there for all these events that you think you've heard of, but we're hearing them from a different angle. So I, yeah, I loved, I I mean, I, I've read as much historical fiction as I can get my hands on and it was a really fun project to work on. And that was when I did use this term castle envy, which I, (laughs) by that I meant, you know, this idea that Americans, since we don't have a Royal family, we are endlessly fascinated by the idea of royalty. You always want what you can't have, right? Exactly. The The grass is always greener. (laughs) So I noticed in the Thousandth Floor series, which I haven't read, but sounds amazing, best-selling series, you have like a zillion fans and everything. You wrote about a futuristic society in 2118 to start. And then in American Royals, you created this whole alternate universe, obviously with the U.S. as a monarchy. And I was just wondering, is there something about these alternate realities that you in particular find so interesting? Like, does reimagining do something for you personally, emotionally? Or is there something that makes you like to rewrite what life could be? It's a funny balance to strike because if you've read my books, you know that I'm a bit of an optimist. And so I I don't like to write about dark dystopian worlds. I really do want to write about a world that hopefully is 
certainly in the Thousand Floor series, is slightly better than the world that we live in now. But that said, people are flawed. And certainly characters have to be flawed or you have no story to tell because a story about perfect people in a perfect world would be a very short story. (laughs) No story turns and no drama. So storytelling moments come from people's mistakes and the way that they handle those mistakes and, of course, their desires, which often they want things that are not good for them and what they're willing to do in order to get what they want. So as far as the the what if of it all goes, you know, it's been a real, a really fun exercise to imagine the what if of a world where we do have a monarchy in the present day. It has led to a lot of questions throughout the book, both big and small. So small moments such as, you know, do we have a national anthem? Do we sing God Save the King? Is it something else that I've never heard? You know, should I make up an alternate version of the Pledge of Allegiance? And then, of course, much bigger questions like, what does the rest of the world look like? So if you're taking as your thesis even just using a basic eighth grade knowledge of history and not going deep, 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 because we could debate it forever. But, you know, thinking that, okay, the American Revolution inspired most of the later revolutions of world history from the French Revolution to the Haitian Revolution to the Russian Revolution. And so what, what does the world look like now if you take out this very first domino? And where I've landed is a bit of an optimistic place, which is that the rest of the world does look quite a bit like modern England. So we have kept the trappings of monarchy, but socially the world has advanced. And obviously there's no more serfdom in Russia or anything like that. And if you do enjoy history and want to go deep in it, I think one of the things that you know, hindsight's twenty twenty, but one of the things that strikes me about all of these sort of doomed monarchies is how many chances they had to fix things and how how easily they could have ended up like England and sort of kept their position but ceded away a lot of their power to some kind of representative government. I recently watched The Last Sars on Netflix. I don't know if you've watched it. I haven't it. seen it. Oh my gosh, it's so good. And I'm endlessly fascinated by the Romanovs, but it's painful to watch because there are so many moments where you're seeing Nicholas make mistake after mistake and you're going, just talk to them. Like, They've they've elected representatives, like, please just go meet with them, do something. Because the people didn't, most people didn't want to kill that family. You know, they, they, most people didn't even understand what this idea of having a whole new democracy, it was very revolutionary. And anyway, so in American royals, people were not so dumb and people actually did, you know, he, they, they didn't make all those mistakes and they were able to sort of save the, the position that they held. And so in the modern world, there's a little bit of like this, the world has frozen time in the 18th century because the Romanoffs are still around. And, you know, in France, we're on Louis the 24th or something. Right, and right. so there are these other monarchies, but of course it's the modern world. You know, we, we've advanced socially. So it's a really fun what if game to play. And I, I'm lucky my college roommate is getting a PhD in history and she's endlessly patient with me, (laughs) like debating the nuances of my alternate world and all of its little corners of it. So you could have taken this obvious passion and interest in this topic, or really a lot of topics related to this time in history. You could have done anything with that. You've chosen to write this type of a book. 
for this audience? Who's your target audience? Like how old? Oh, that? everyone. Everyone? <laughs> no. I, I definitely think this book hopefully should appeal, I mean, to men and women, but it's it's narrated by four young women. So I would say this is, I like to think of this as falling in a women's fiction category, at least a crossover category. Fans of Crazy Rich Asians, of Jasmine Guillory, of Emily Giffen, I think will hopefully love the book. It's, you know, it's got a lot of romance unquestionably. So if, if you don't like romance, I would steer clear. But there there's a lot more in there aside from the love stories. And I feel like it appeals to teenagers too. I mean, this is like, yes, right? There's a lot of drama related to, some of them have just gone to college. I don't know. There's something very coming of age about it as well, which I feel like can appeal to even a slightly coming younger of age audience. stories are totally timeless. That's I think true. it's so I, fun. And I'm not trying to say this no, is for this type of person. I agree. But I think I think that's the really fun thing about getting to tell this type of story. It's It's really a privilege to get to tell the story of how people are coming into who they are as adults. And I think, I mean, people do often ask me this. And I think my answer is often that, I mean, I'm still coming of age. I'm still figuring out, you know, what does the world (laughs) expect of me? And how does that come into conflict with what, who I want to be and what I want from the world? So just to talk about a few things in the book. So Nina is one of the main characters who becomes close friends with all of the royal family. So Nina struggles with Daphne, who is this backstabbing, social climbing, you know, I want to marry the prince, come hell or high water type of character. So Nina is now struggling with Daphne in her backstabbing ways. And her mother gives her some advice. She says, oh, Nina, I've gone up against the Daphne Daytons of the world a thousand times over. You think, and the mom is a lesbian, so she says, you think your mom and I don't know what it's like being told that we aren't good enough, that we don't belong? I'm a gay Hispanic woman in a position of enormous power in the king's administration. That has won me far more enemies than it has friends. Every day I face people like Daphne, people who who fight dirty, who think that they're entitled to anything in the world that they want simply because they can reach their greedy hands out and take it. So her mom's solution to this, she says, is to look to her wife to stay grounded. And she says, all you can be is yourself, wholly and unapologetically about this. So I wanted you to tell me a little more about this and wondered if you have come up against Daphne's of the world in your own life. I know this is one of those instances where authors, I feel like they always say, you know, write what you know and write like whatever whatever you're trying to write, whether it's, you know, a sad scene or a happy scene, like you have to draw on your own experiences to write that. And and this really did come from, this is an adapted speech from my own mom, for sure. Really, It is. This job is so much fun and I, I feel very lucky that I get to do it. And most of the time it's wonderful. But the, uh, unfortunately, I'm only human and sometimes I can let the criticism get me down because there obviously are critics and you're not going to please everyone. And unlike most jobs, whether you're a a doctor or a lawyer or, you know, something where your work doesn't feel quite so tied into your own personality and who you are, I think getting criticism is just, it's not a big deal. But it can sometimes feel when people say, ugly things about the books that it feels can feel like an attack. And the the online book community is so wonderful and so strong and for the most part is so supportive. But again, you know, the internet has so many positive uses and I feel like it has brought people together in a way that is overwhelmingly positive. But of course, it also gives people license to say things that they would never say to your face. Right. And so I've gotten a lot better at it. And this is now my fourth book. I, I don't look at reviews unless they come from 
trade publications. I really try to stay away from Goodreads and Amazon and anywhere else. But occasionally there are still people who just troll you and go on your social media and, and write ugly things. And so that sometimes it's hard to bear. And that so my mom, yeah, she really Aww. did give me this speech that was like, don't, who cares what anonymous people are saying about you? And it's all, and, and you know who you are and we, your family know who you are and stay that use that as your anchor and stay grounded in that. And just the rest is all just noise and it's keeping you from doing the job that you love, which is telling stories and, you know, telling stories that matter to you and that you think that the world should hear. That's awesome. I love your mom now. <laughs> so Daphne tells Ethan, who is another character in the book early on, I wouldn't, and he is not in the royal family either, but, and they have this sort of interesting relationship all of their own. But anyway, she says, and he's commenting on her relationship her would-be relationship with the prince, I wouldn't expect you to understand. Relationships never make sense from the outside. The only people qualified to weigh in on them are the people in them. So I feel like you dig deep into a variety of kinds of relationships, from true love to social climbing to relationships out of duty and a sense of uh, responsibility. Does your own interest in sort of understanding those intricacies of relationships color all your writing? Is that something? Oh, of absolutely. And I think that's why I love telling a multi-POV story. So the really fun thing about this book, because it is narrated by four young women in alternating chapters, and as the reader, probably at the beginning you feel a little bit bewildered because you're thinking, why am I continuing to meet new people? <laughs> like, when am I going to get back to the first person I met? That doesn't happen until chapter five. I didn't feel like that. I'm glad you didn't feel no, that way. I didn't feel that Because like, I love stories like this. And as a reader, I, I gravitate towards big fat books. And I love, I mean, I, I do read, like I said, a lot of historical fiction, but some fantasy. I always love books that have a lot of front matter. Mm -hmm. So by that, I mean, they've got maps or they've got family trees. And it's sort of a promise to me that the world might be really big. But as the reader, if you stick with me and invest a little bit of time, it's going to pay off a thousandfold. And that is what comes from having a multi-POV story. And so, the you know, the story turns and the drama and the excitement all come from the fact that you're jumping from one character to another and you're seeing a moment or a conversation from one character's point of view and then you get into another character's head and you realize that the second character interpreted it completely different. Mm -hmm. One of my favorite examples of this, I don't know if you've read or watched Game of Thrones, my kids have, oh, unfortunately, no. with their okay. dad, but I have not. This is my Game of Thrones <laughs> example, but it's basically there's a character named Jamie Lannister who in the first two or three books and the beginning of the TV show, as the reader or viewer, you just hate him mm -hmm. because you the only people who are narrating are people who despise him for various reasons. And then he finally starts narrating and I think it's book four, and everything changes because you hear his side of it and you understand completely differently. And I, that's what storytelling is for at its right. core. It's your, the whole reason that people invented language was to share experiences and to, you know, as a reader, the reason you go to a book is to put yourself in the position of someone whose life you haven't lived and could never live. So, so that's the real fun of this book is that there are so many relationships because 
you've got four main characters and then a lot of secondary characters. So the knot can become really tangled. And that's one of my favorite things is always to ask people, you know, who is your favorite character and, and which, who are you shipping? You know, which relationship are you rooting for? And it's always different, you know, and sometimes people name relationship pairings that I haven't even thought of introduced it? yet or <laughs> thought of, or sometimes I have thought of them and they're coming in book two and I haven't told people. Oh, and I'm so like, oh, yeah. Is, are you in the process? I'm of- in the process of writing the second book. Yeah. Excellent. What is it also called American? What's it called? Do you have a title? Oh, I do have a title, but we haven't publicly shared it yet, so okay. I can't. So I, can't I will announce keep it. watching your Instagram yes. feed for it'll be for an, an update. It'll be an but it's the same characters. It's the same characters. Oh, oh yeah. I it love picks that. up about six weeks after book one ends. Oh, good. So it's oh, good. Things are moving. I'm, yes. I'm really excited. I felt sort of sad to say goodbye to these characters. So oh, I would never end on that kind of cliffhanger. Okay, but don't worry. All right, interesting. I thought that was like one and done. I didn't know. So. Oh, Perfect. yeah. Perfect. That would be very cruel of me to end like that, I feel like. I didn't think it was cruel. I you thought, didn't think it was I, cruel. I thought it was an interesting ending because you're it's left not, to wonder. It's not totally resolved. Is Yes. Yeah. Well, interesting. Oh, that's so cool. So how long does it take for you to write these books? Tell me a little more about your process. It should take about a year start to finish, but I can get slow sometimes. <laughs> so. And I've read you have like huge outlines and you're like a big plotter. I do. I'm a huge plotter. But again, because of the multi-POV, it's really hard to... I, I don't think I could write this kind of book just with a blank page. And I know others like that. I was just with one last week and it's so... It just goes to show that everyone needs to find their own writing process because she. this is Kendara Blake who writes the Three Dark Crowns series. And she, when she's describing her process, she goes, yeah, I just sit at my computer and I, I wait for inspiration to strike. And I just think if I was waiting... I would be waiting all day like a little surfer out, just right. never <laughs> catching a wave. Just like, you ha- I feel like I have to sort of, I'm more hacking my way through a forest with a hatchet. I don't know. I'm like, okay, I have to, the story's here and I just have to find it. And I, I go down some wrong paths before I find the one that feels right. But I definitely outline first because otherwise I would, I need a roadmap. And then I, I, I change a lot through the process. Sometimes I take away a whole character's story and rebuild it from scratch, but at least I have something that I'm rebuilding versus a blank page syndrome is, is a real thing for yeah. me. That, that is a scary prospect to just look at a computer and not know what you're writing. At least this way I say, okay, this is the scene that I'm writing today. I'm writing these two characters in this place, and this is what they're talking about. And then maybe I'll change the whole thing halfway through, but I've got a starting place. And where do you like to write? I work from home. I have a home office. I live in my hometown of Houston, Texas, and my office is on the first floor, and it's got a lot of natural light. And I, yeah, I love silence. It's kind of, I mean, I was a library worker in college, and, you know, I... Just like Nina. Yeah, I don't do well in really crowded or loud places. Although it's really funny when I I visited the friend I was telling you about with the history degree. She is studying at the University of Berlin. And so I visited her last year in Germany and I ended up working a few days in cafes in Germany and it totally worked for me. And I think it's because I don't understand or speak (laughs) German. And so it all just sort of melted away into background noise. But when I'm anywhere crowded and people are speaking English, it's really, I just... The words sort of attack my brain, and I feel like it's really hard for me to create my own words because I'm hearing too many other ones. I, I don't listen to music either. I'm pretty weird like that. I feel like a lot of authors have soundtracks, but I just listen to music as a break to sort of clear my head. But otherwise, yeah, silence. So 
So that's, I love working from home for that reason. And you have some fuzzy slippers you're like obsessed with? I have fuzzy slippers. I have a cough. Yeah, I really do wear them every day, actually. (laughs) They like live under my desk and I put them on every day. It's Um, nice to have a routine like that. Yeah. It's like, you know, it's like your work hat, your work shoes. It's like your, I know. (laughs) I used to get dressed up. Well, obviously when I back when I had an office job, I always wore dresses and heels and tried to look nice. And now it's... Like I wear jeans and t-shirts, but you look beautiful today. Very comfy. Katie's wearing this gorgeous red dress and looks amazing. So, yeah. Well, today, today is a special, <laughs> day. A special day. <laughs> today I'm not wearing fuzzy no, slippers. No slippers today. <laughs> Wait. So let me just ask you one other thing. You went to business school. So, I did. So, I saw that you asked. About yes, that. yes. I I also went to business school as sort of a non-traditional business type person. I love to write, and I would like write for the paper. And I felt a little bit always like sort of an oddball among some of the more analytical only type people. Mm-hmm. Why did you end up at business school, and how do you think it's helped your writing, if at all? I do think it's helped. I was a lost soul, as many people who go to business school are. So I worked as a book editor in New York for four years, straight out of college. So I worked at actually at Warner Brothers. And got to edit some amazing books like the Pretty Little Liars series and the last four Vampire Diaries. So I, w- I was working in sort of the, the teen franchisee space. And I was having a lot of fun at my job, but it ultimately I felt like I, a few years in, I really had learned everything and I was just executing, which is always a sign that you should pause and re-examine what you're doing. I mean, certainly as a writer, I feel like I'm still learning. I probably will never stop learning. And I'm not just learning the history facts, but learning how I do my own job. Mm-hmm. It's it's always changing. And I did feel like I, you know, I was sort of hitting a wall. I didn't really want to stay in book editing forever, but I didn't know where I wanted to go. And so like many confused people, I took the GMAT and ended up getting into business school. And so I went. At the time, I thought, that I would stay in entertainment and work somewhere on the business side, anywhere from being, I don't even know, at, at a movie studio mm-hmm. or at Netflix or somewhere or or some other form of entertainment. I actually interned in between my first and second summers at a mobile gaming company, mm-hmm. which was really fun and very refreshing. I learned a lot about teenagers and you know what they're doing on their phones all the time. <laughs> I don't want to know. Still don't understand. I don't want to know. But I, you know, ultimately it wasn't my passion. And so I had always wanted to write. And I feel like I am a very unusual person because most people go to business school and try to relax for two years and, and sort of re, you know, obviously learn a lot about business, but they're not trying to do things on the side. Whereas I started writing the House of Four books on the side and wrote the first book in between summers in between the first and second year in that summer. And then I sold it. And then I kind of had this decision to make of, am I writing full time or am I letting the writing go? And because I I did get a full-time job offer from the mobile gaming company. And then also I was interviewing with Apple and none of it just really felt like what I wanted to be doing. And so here I am writing full time. And definitely most people at business school, you know, are not going into a creative field. But I do think that it has helped Certainly, I feel very equipped to handle the business side of my own writing. And that's something that I think a lot of young writers struggle with or don't know enough about. And I wish there were more resources. You know, it's it's just nice to be able to read a contract and know exactly what I'm getting into, to have taken a few marketing classes, to feel like I, you know, I can, even though the books are a creative business, they're still a business and it's, it's nice that I can do some of that on my own. I, I don't know if I would love it if I had to really rely on mm-hmm. outside people to help me with all the moving pieces of the business. 
When I was in business school, one class that I was in, they said, for a writer, you're still manufacturing a product mm-hmm. and your product is words. They probably said that to you. Anyway. No, yeah, I mean, it is. <laughs> but it's and the same thing. You're making And I think something. about that. And especially with this book, you know, my marketing team at Random House has been absolutely amazing and they're so fun to talk to. But, but I try to lead them down that path because it's so easy to sort of do the same thing over and over. Mm-hmm. And I keep telling them, you know, let's pretend, like, pretend this isn't a book at all. Pretend it's a lip gloss. Mm-hmm. You know, how, like, what would we be doing? How would we market it? And that's, it's just a good mental exercise because it helps you think outside the box. Like, well, yeah. aside, what, what can we do aside from bookstore events? What can we do right. aside from buying Facebook ads? Like, let's try to think of new and creative and fun things. And that's led to some really cool events. And, you know, it's, that's great. I don't know if that, that's awesome. Has helped people find the book, but I, I'm always looking to to help new people find stories that they love. And and I think that you know the, the readers who are coming to bookstores every week, like they don't need my help. <laughs> they're going to find what they want to find, and, and whether it's my book or someone else's. But there are plenty of people who might be more of TV watchers, or might right. you know they might consume their entertainment in a different form, and they might not know like how what book to be looking for, so. I was driving up Madison Avenue yesterday, and in one of these abandoned storefronts, there was a huge poster covering all the windows of The Floating Feldmans by Alyssa Friedland, who's been on my my show. I was like, that's so genius. Like, why not put, you know, ask to put a, a basically a Mm -hmm. poster in it. Anyway, I thought that was cool. Do you have any advice to aspiring authors? I always tell people, read as much as you can. Read everything you can get your hands on. I think the more you read, the more it helps you hone your own specific voice and especially to read widely. So for instance, you know, I, I try to not read, even though it's very tempting to not just read fiction and particularly not just read women's fiction or contemporary fiction because the more variety of content that you're consuming, it keeps the creative well really full. And then of course, I mean, these are very, they sound really obvious, but they're actually hard to put into practice is to keep writing and to write often. I find that the longer I go without writing, the harder it is to start back up. It's like the gym. (laughs) Yes, it's just like the gym. Or to go, to put this into business school terms, in a class I took operations first Mm -hmm. year. And in operations, one of the few things I took away from that class was startup costs. Mm -hmm. And it's, that's like a factory term where if you're, you know, a factory making and a blue stationary, and then you need to switch to making yellow stationary. There's a cost for shutting down the machine, changing out the inks, whatever it is. That's like the changeover cost from one thing to another. And then to start it all back up is really high, depending on what you're making. But for me in particular, making words, it is really high. It's hard. And so I find that even if I go and I write something I'm not going to use at all, and it's just 250 words, it's so much more worth it for me, no matter how busy my day is, if I can, to try to take an hour or something just to be in the document, to stay in the world, because I don't want to have to face that really hard startup cost. And I'm going to have to face it next week because I haven't (laughs) touched the book in about a week and a half. And it's going to take me, for real, about a day just to get back into it. And I'm going to probably have a day of useless work. And then and then eventually I'll be able to, my machines will be up and running and then I'll, I'll be back in. But I do think that, you know, it's, writing is like anything that if you do it with discipline, it will pay off. Who would you appoint Queen of America right now if there was actually a monarchy? I know. So the, 
the cheesy answer would, of course, be that like we should all be the queen of America because we don't actually need monarchy, clearly. I mean, Beyonce would be a great... <laughs> but the thing about having a queen, which would... like The way that that would be a different structure than what we have is, of course, that we currently combine our head of political, the head of the executive branch and our head of state into the same person. And so if we did have a queen, I feel like their role is just to be head of state. Yeah. It's just all of the symbolic stuff. It's just to be, you know, it's we need someone who like everyone can get behind. And I feel like nobody, like who doesn't like Beyonce? Like, there you she, go. Who I like would Beyonce? totally let her represent us <laughs> on the world stage. That's awesome. Well, thanks so much for coming in. I loved your book. Thank it was you for amazing talking me. to you. It and, was so uh, fun. Yeah. Best of luck with everything. Thank so, you. Awesome. Thanks again to my sponsor, Lauren Gabrielson, the women's wear brand that creates elevated essentials for the modern women's wardrobe, laurengabrielson.com. Thanks for listening to Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books. You can follow me on Instagram at Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books. Thanks so much to Steve and Ryan at Texture Sound for the sound editing. And thank you to Morning Moon Productions for providing this fantastic intro and outro music. Thanks for listening. You could always email me at zibby at zibbyowens.com.